Welcome to Old Books with Grace. I'm Dr. Grace Hammond, and I'm so excited. This episode marks the beginning of season three of Old Books with Grace, which is really fun. So welcome back. I hope you all had a wonderful summer. Today, I'm so excited to welcome Zena Hitz to Old Books with Grace. Zena Hitz is a tutor at St. John's College in Annapolis, where she has the joy of teaching great books of mathematics, science, and literature, as well as in her home fields of classics and philosophy. She received a Master's of Philosophy in Classics from Cambridge University and a PhD in Philosophy from Princeton. Her academic work has focused upon Aristotle. More recently, Dr. Hitz has offered a public defense for learning for its own sake, including in her book, Lost in Thought, The Hidden Pleasures of an Intellectual Life. Her essays on the importance of humanistic study have appeared in Commonweal, First Things, New Statesman, Washington Post, Womankind, and elsewhere. In 2020, Dr. Hitz founded The Catherine Project, a nonprofit which hosts serious conversations on great books open to everyone. Her new book for general audiences, A Philosopher Looks at the Religious Life, gives an account of the Christian ascetical tradition and its importance in everyday life. Welcome, Dr. Hitz. I'm so pleased that you're here today. So I ask everyone who comes on Old Books with Grace two questions as a sort of get to know you. So this is the first one. What is your favorite book or author from more than 50 years ago? Ooh, that's a hard one because most of my favorite authors are from more than 50 years ago. Absolutely. <laughs> harder I'm question. in the same boat as you. It's yeah. a very, you can answer like, you know, top five. You don't have to keep it in a super elite group of one. Um, so I think, um, you know, I'm just going to take an easy one and say, I think it's Augustine's Confessions. Good uh, choice. Just because it has, I've learned a lot about, about it as a philosopher, the the philosophy I think is very rich and very profound, but it is also has a story. Uh, and so otherwise I would have to pick between philosophers and um, literature, but fortunately there's this book that has both at once. So I can pick that one. It's a marvelous book. I mean, yeah. it's what I tell, like people ask me sometimes, oh, I'd really love to read a theology, but I don't, I don't really know how or where or why. And I'm like, I know that just the book for you, you need to go read Confessions because it doesn't read like you are immersing yourself in a textbook. It's amazing. No, I, uh, the, every time I go back to it and I've been, had the chance to go back to it regularly, I'm just astonished at what a good book it is and how, how, how much I learn every time I pick it up. So. What's your favorite part? Um, I I have a kind of lurid interest in like the gladiators and Alepius. Um but probably actually I like the philosophical parts at the end the best. I was wondering uh, if you were gonna yeah, say that I as do. a philosopher. Yeah. I do. I um I like book book ten is probably the part I've spent the most time with, the treatment of of memory and I love his his stuff on memory. Yeah, I think it's yeah. so interesting. And it's so, yeah, it's amazing. Yeah. Sort of I mean timeless. Um I <laughs> I've reread it probably three times. And every time I'm like, I need to reread this again. There's more here still. Uh, I think the part I know least well is the discussion of creation in 12 and 13. So that's a little fresher to me. So it's even more exciting than the other parts. Mm -hmm. uh, I've just started to kind of sink my teeth into it. Uh, so anyway, but all the parts are good. Yeah. 
That's great. Okay, question number two for you. Which literary character do you most identify with and why? And it doesn't have to be highbrow. It could be anything. We've had all kinds of answers on here. So what literary character? Mm-hmm. Um, so I don't want to be too complicated. I, I know it's meant to be a friendly question. But, um, you can be as complicated as you want. No worries at all. Because a part of me thinks I should say something like Socrates, you know, who like sort of defines the kind of life that I try to lead, right? On the other hand, he's not a person who I really connect with in my character exactly. He's just he just laid out a manner of life and a and a, that that I try to follow. Um, or like, yeah, the, you know, the Virgin Mary, you know, that wouldn't really count. Sure. She's not really, she's not really like, a character or like true, the saints. Not a character. Yeah. Um, cause those I, are more like aspirational, um, ex- which you could answer exactly. aspirationally if you wished, but really it, it yeah, yeah. Who do you see yourself in? Who are you most the, like? The, the, the person who let's take, make it easy for me. The person who I related to best most recently was, um, in Elena Ferrante's Neapolitan novels, mm-hmm. I relate to the narrator, uh, Lenu, very closely. Um, she, especially the way Ferrante writes her as this um, sort of awkward, striving young person who somehow life shakes out of herself, mm-hmm. you know. She becomes better than she should be, given her character, um, and that was definitely the last time I had a really sh- sharp experience of the author of this book has met me. This character is a part of who I am in a crucial way. Um, so that's, that would be the, that would be sort of the most straightforward answer, I think. Um, See, I, I read the first one of the Neo- Neapolitan books and then I got off track for some reason, but um it- it happens. Yeah. There's this, the only part in the first book that I think where you see it is where she's, she's ranking herself in her elementary school classroom. <laughs> I remember that part. Yeah. Now, I, now, strictly speaking, that's not, my, those aren't my values, but mm-hmm. I find myself making rankings all the time. Yeah. Like it's like just a kind of automatic habit. And I, um, at one point it, for, for one of my teaching jobs, not at St. John's, but, um, I was asked to, um, weigh in on prizes for students. And I just found myself taking it so much more seriously than anyone else. And, <laughs> you know, really thinking about the minute differences between students on a certain ranking. And uh, it was terrifying to me, but it was real. It's a real part of who I am. So <laughs> I, I have to face it. Yeah. I feel like too, if, if you have that impulse in you at all, then when you are in the academy for a while, unfortunately, it only tends to like sharpen it a little bit and you have to make a concerted effort to not go down the ranking path. It's a hard thing not it's, to do. It's very hard. No, no, no. I think academic training trains us to rank more. I mean, you <laughs> and with more intensity and to take it more seriously. And yeah, yeah. I've, I've spent a lot of time trying to untangle myself from the ranking world. But it's hard to do. Hard um, to do. Yeah. Well, I just finished um, your wonderful book, Lost in Thought, which I very much enjoyed. And in it, um, you, and this is related to the ranking question, the ranking aspect, certainly, um, in it, you make the case following ancient teachers of the past that we should value learning for its own sake. So not for its utility or its outcomes. 
And you use all these wonderful examples from the Virgin Mary to Einstein to Simone Weil and Malcolm X. Um, you describe a way of thinking about learning that is really countercultural to our outcomes-oriented lives right now. Even really good outcomes, by the way, like justice, for instance. And so I wanted to ask you, in a nutshell, and I know this is a massive question, but <laughs> why is it important that learning is not harnessed to an outcome? Why should it be valued for its own sake? Yeah, I think this is really a good question because in a way, my book is rhetorical. It's because it's what I'm very confident of, but which I change the terms of how I talk is that our current way of thinking about education is very seriously wrong. Mm -hmm. And we, we tend to call it outcomes-based. So learning outcomes at every level are, are considered very, you know, an essential part of designing a learning program. Um, and my objection is not entirely to outcomes as such. It's really to outcomes as conceived by the educational establishment. Mm -hmm. So I, um, that means on the one hand, I'm very, uh, I think that job training is not an appropriate educational goal, um, by and large. Um, it can be. There are skills which are useful for jobs like trades and how electricity works and how to how to fix a car or how to work plumbing or um, how to engineer a bridge that really are useful. But a lot of what goes by job training is, I think, things that companies would like the, the state or other private institutions to train their workers in. Mm -hmm. And I, I think it's actually um, harmful because it's not, it's A, not of enduring use. It's for a given moment at a given time, a different given company in, a, in an economy that's changing very quickly. But I also think it ends up diminishing, taking time and energy away from types of learning, which really make us into better, fuller human beings. Um, but if you pressed me and said, well, isn't a better, fuller human being a type of outcome, uh, then I would say, well, yeah, in a way, of course it is. If someone is wiser and more generous and more humble, uh, that in a way is an outcome. If their, life is, if their life is rich, if they have resources for their own reflection, um, if they can think imaginatively and thoughtfully about uh, their lives and their roles in their own communities. Those are all, I think, things which education should should be directed at. Um, but it's a much uh, freer and much deeper type of, of education that I'm committed to and that really I, I sort of entered into public writing in order to, to try to defend and promote uh, against all the forces that I think are arranged against it right now. Mm. And it, that's a hard, a hard thing even to be able to push back against because it's not something that's quantifiable on a piece of paper or in a software program or even necessarily in a uh, controlled st scientific study. Um, so there's a, all the things that are used to um, bolster someone's argument right now about the, the about the the goodness of something. It, it's going to be very hard um, in regards to reforming how we think about learning to make an argument like that. Um, and I really appreciate it because it's uh, you. You make this point in your book about how 
how we instrumentalize learning and kind of inadvertently by instrument instrumentalizing learning, we instrumentalize people, right? Um, could you talk a little bit more about that? Because I think that's a really important idea for us as we think about how are we valuing people for just being people versus valuing them as uh, a tool or a way of making money or a means of productivity or whatever, fill in the blank, right? Right. So um, I want to be even bolder than the question and say something like everything that we value with good reason, everything that we reasonably value um, culminates in some value for some human being. Mm -hmm. Uh, So ultimately the value of human lives is the standard by which everything else is valuable. Mm. And if you press people on that, they'll admit it. Um, So everyone knows, for instance, I think that uh, wealth, which is essential for human functioning, we all need some money to, to, for, for shelter and healthcare and food and the comforts of life. Um, But um, what is that wealth for? It's for, the things that make us human. So if you view, start to view people in the interests of wealth as wealth generators. So for instance, it's very fashionable right now among higher education administrators to try to judge majors um, by how much added income they're going to give uh, the students. Yes. So that they, they charge tuition on the basis of how much income that they're going to be added. And that, that's meant to be a kind of stand in for common value. Um, and that is really crazy because uh, the ways in which uh, money is used is valuable within a given life is hugely variable. Um, and our communities might flourish um, not so much by uh, a few people making a lot of money or a leadership class making a lot of money, but by um, everyone making enough money to do the things which make lives meaningful, which help us to flourish individually and as a group. Um, And all of our, um, I think every institution, I mean, I I work in education. That's, that's where I've always been. Um, But as far as I can see, every institution right now has been become kind of preoccupied with metrics, uh, with very forms of measurement, which I think are often very superficial. Um, They invite, ways of uh, gaming the results, gaming the Mm -hmm. outcomes. Mm -hmm. And as a result, the basic human goals of our institutions uh, are not being attained. And I I think what I'm saying is obvious to anyone, no matter what their institution is, like your, your police departments, your schools, your hospitals, they are not attaining the goals that, that everyone knows they're meant to attain. Um, And the reason for that is this kind of bureaucratic uh, metric structure that's been put over them. And it, it, it instrumentalizes people. Um, it turns them into vehicles for value. Uh, but it also doesn't even really do that very well. Uh, the, the, the dysfunction goes, goes very deep. Um, so I started out in my writing really thinking hard about what it meant to be having it to learn for its own sake and to value intrinsic goods and to value human flourishing and the basics of you know, what makes an individual human life meaningful and beautiful. Um, and I think I had good reason for that. But the, the longer I've, I've thought about it and the longer I've talked about it, the more I see that, in fact, 
the alternatives are, are failing on their own terms. Mm. Um, it's, it's not even a matter of choose my way or choose this other way, which could get you some other things, but have some costs. It's more like, well, someone's got to figure out why our institutions are collapsing. Uh, and when you do that, I think you see that at least the way I'm thinking about things is one, one step towards trying to repair them. Thinking mm. about what's really good for the people involved in these institutions, uh, what we need as human beings. Um, yeah, it, it's, an, it's a really interesting way of, of trying to think around this problem. Um, and I found myself thinking, uh, trying to think of other activities where you, you could resist sort of this instrumentalizing impulse. And one thing that I thought of was um, children playing. And um, I haven't <laughs> thought too deeply about it. It just struck me, though, that another thing that we talk about as something that you do for its own sake, uh, whatever that means, there's a lot of uh, things to dive into in that statement. But if you think about children playing as a as a sort of interesting corollary to how we could maybe start to think about learning um, and teaching and in that movement, it's interesting to, I don't know, the, the sheer apparent uselessness of play is, right. but it's extreme sort of necessity to childhood for reasons that we can't even really begin to fathom. Um, I wonder if <laughs> there's, uh, do you think that there's a relationship with how the imaginative child plays and how the imaginative adult learns or shares knowledge. Yeah, I think it's a perfect analogy, honestly, because in both cases, in both the case of children's play and in the case of intellectual life, um, we're, we have natural drives towards these things. We want to learn. Children want to learn by their nature. If, if your child doesn't want to learn, hates learning, it's, it's most likely because of the way it's being presented to them in their school, uh, not because of anything that's in them. And it may be a, a preferences about subject or, or, or particular inclinations. But likewise with play, children play without even trying. Um, but there's a certain kind of parent or a certain kind of school which says, oh, here's this play thing. We know it's good for development. Let's try to find a way to impose a structure on it so that it maximizes our the, our desirable yeah. <laughs> outcomes. And you know the the end result, which seems kind of obvious, is that it, it stops being play and becomes work. Um, and it also maybe maybe we don't know from the outside what um, what kind of play is best. And maybe we can have more of a dynamic structure where. Children guide themselves in what they want to do, and the, the wise adult looks on and makes sure that nothing's going on that's dangerous or harmful. And the same is true for intellectual life. That is, you let people learn according to what they want to learn and what, what their natural desire to learn is taking them. And you have wise adults looking on who say, well, okay, why don't you, if that's where you're going, why don't you go a little bit more in this direction, and why don't you maybe take a look at this, and maybe there's a, this tool can help you. Um, but you're not trying to impose a structure from the top down that's going to maximize the results. Um, we're better at it um, when we at playing and at thinking when we do it spontaneously, when we're left to ourselves, when we're driven by our own motivations, um, which is not to take away the guides and the parents and the teachers, but it's to give them a more cooperative role and less of a dictatorial role. Yeah. Um, I think 
some of the examples that you used in the book in in talking about uh, this kind of way of thinking about learning were really helpful. Do you think you could share some of those again? Because I think sometimes it, you get uh, these ideas feel so like, oh, how do I even begin to conceptualize what this would look like? But the thing is, is that people have lived this way and learned this way actually for a very long time. It's just not a sort of normative idea for whatever reason. Um, could you share some of those? Well, I, I would love to hear which examples struck you the most, um, but here are some examples. I mean, so if you think about, since we were just talking about children, um, I've never met a child who wasn't interested in cataloging bugs, okay? So they're, they're <laughs> the very grosser, interested. The grosser, the better. <laughs> yeah, the very, the, they're very interested in bugs or worms. They want to collect them. They want to lay them next to each other. And that is the function of a desire to learn, a desire to understand, a desire to identify, a desire to compare each thing with the other, um, or an interest. In, I mean, I, I write about this in my book when I was a child. My brother and I loved uh, all kinds of animals, you know, especially whales and dolphins and walruses and penguins. Um, that's a desire to learn um, that's behind that. Uh, so that's, that's on the, the, the child's level. Um, but I also use examples, I mean, the kind of examples that strike me are cases that happen of, of really serious, beautiful learning that happen outside of educational institutions, because to me that shows something about how it's in our hearts mm -hmm. and by nature and not just something that is imposed on us because we have to do it. Um, so one of my favorite examples is uh, John Baker, who was, uh, um, worked at the British equivalent of AAA, the Automobile Association mm -hmm. <laughs> in Essex, and never finished college, never went to university, never went to college, but loved literature as, as a young person. And he got obsessed with peregrine falcons, and he spent 10 years riding around on a bicycle, taking notes and drawing pictures and, you know, writing out his experiences in notebooks. Um, and, you know, he... He wrote this beautiful book called The Peregrine, um, which is very strange. It's not a uh, <laughs> scientific study on peregrine falcons. It's not quite a poem on peregrine falcons. It's a little bit of both. Um, but it's very clearly uh, the expression of uh, a single human being's attempt to understand the natural world and to be a part of it and to puzzle through all of the things that seem to go wrong there. Um, various questions arise as he's looking. You know, he he kind of admires these birds because they're so murderous. I mean, they're 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 uh, raptors, right? Uh -huh. So they're they swoop down from the sky and pick up little mice and cute little bunnies, and and that's part of what makes them so interesting. And he wonders how he can get so close to them and think about them so much without becoming developing something in himself that's that's ugly and murderous. Um, so I, it's just completely fascinating and, and a sign of what, um, what is in some way in all of us, even if we can't all write as beautifully or if the stuff we write never makes it into publication. Yeah, that's a really great example. I also really enjoyed the one I'm sadly forgetting their names, but, um, of the brother and sister who, who became astronomers, um, Yes, that, the Herschel, William and Caroline of course, Herschel. Yes, yes, yes. yes. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. And who basically were just ordinary folks in the 18th century <laughs> who became obsessed with telescopes and had this whole uh, 
life, this whole rich life in the stars. Yeah, to me, that story. So William Herschel is a they're both from Germany, but he's he's living in England um, and working as a music teacher and just becomes obsessed with the sky and starts building telescopes. And then his he brings his sister over as a housekeeper and she gets really interested, too. So they both start doing it. It's a kind of tribute to you know, what boredom can do, right? I mean, <laughs> yeah. none of us are ever sufficiently bored or, or energetic thereby to put that kind of time into a hobby or something that's not work. Um, it's just completely, I mean, most of us just don't do things like that. Mm-hmm. Um, and I think it's because we're so, you know, we're, we're really almost, we're, we're, we often feel a kind of emptiness, but we're almost never bored. We know we often think, what am I going to do with these these hours between, you know, 6 p.m. and 6 a.m., which is apparently what he thought, you know, and uh, <laughs> just spent hours and hours looking at the sky until he'd memorized whole sections of it. Yeah, yeah it's, it's the double-edged sword of the internet where it's this great resource often if you are, if you do become someone who's, you know, really committed to a particular subject, really diving into something, learning, um, but it also is the uh, infinite distraction waiting for you if uh and i i have yeah that's a struggle um (laughs) but what would you say for people who like folks outside of the academy um most of my listeners are not in the academy and and but who are people who are interested in learning (laughs) they're listening to a podcast about old writers old books interacting with them what they mean to us right now so they're curious folks but um, how, what would you recommend to them for fostering a rich intellectual life, fostering that learning for its own sake? So the, the main thing I would want to say, offer is just heartfelt encouragement, because I think that it's um, one of the sicknesses of our culture is somehow it's not worth doing unless you're an expert, you know, mm. it's not mm. worth doing unless you have a degree and there's no, there's nothing you could do that's worthwhile if you don't already have a master's degree. You know, and if that were true, then someone like William Herschel would never have gotten anywhere because there were no master's degrees. There was no astronomy really, strictly speaking at that time. I mean, he just, you know, he just did, he just took an interest in what he was interested in and likewise with, with John Baker. So I, I think on the one hand, remember it, it doesn't take, um, you know, millions of hours, you can undertake an intellectual life uh, a couple hours a day uh, or an hour a day or whenever you have time to check in. I think consistency is more important than than length of time. Mm-hmm. Um, and then, As a mother of young children, I definitely agree with you. <laughs> I don't have hours a day, but I do. But it's that it's that check in, I think, for me, at right. least in my case, that is like, oh, like my brain then tends to just sort of dwell on it lightly then the rest of the day different things will occur to me or pop up in my imagination that wouldn't have been there if I hadn't just even briefly dove into some you know into something yeah. that was my medieval thing my uh, my own personal obsession so <laughs> no no I think that's just right and it's the same thing for me I mean you know I I teach so in a way everything I do is intellectual but in another way none it, a lot of it doesn't really belong to me mm-hmm. and I lose my own projects if I don't think about them every day I mean mm-hmm. sometimes I can have two hours that's a beautiful wonderful day when you have two hours um other days it's one hour other days it's 20 minutes other days it's five minutes where you just start just like look 
I don't have time today, but I'm going to remind myself that, that this is something I'm doing. Mm-hmm. Um, so that's one thing. And then I, I also think that community is really important. Mm-hmm. Um, and so um, I'd encourage anyone who uh, has a particular interest, whether it's bird, I mean, this is something in a way people already know for something like gardening, right? You, yeah. you find a class, you find a local group. Um, but it's also true for bird watching or for botany. Um, see if there are classes at your local community college. For for the kind of thing which I love most and which I promote most, which is reading old books, um, you know, it, I think one of the challenges is that many of us live in communities where it's really not easy to find other people who want to do the same thing. Yes. So it's it's easy to get very isolated, and with the with the ordinary pressures of life, it can become almost it can feel almost impossible. And I've I've gotten I can't tell you how many letters from people uh, who are in this kind of situation. And uh, when the book first came out, the letters reached sufficient volume that I was, and they were asking me for advice. And I was like, what am I, I've got to do something, you know? So, and that was in COVID times, luckily. So people, oh, gosh, yes. <laughs> people had gotten used to Zoom and I, I started setting up online um, great books discussions. No credit, no degrees, no, no charge, no tuition. And that's still running and has gotten actually quite large and successful. So it's called The Catherine Project. And we have offerings every semester and anyone from any walk of life can come sign up um, and join our groups. And that can be a way to connect if you're really isolated or just a way to kind of get the fire going, you know, so that you, you know, so that your confidence in your own interest and your own ability to carry, have these conversations is built. Because I think a lot of people think really, I, I talk to a lot of people who really don't believe that their intellectual interests are are important yes and and they 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 are they really are and and you can read even an old difficult book and you can contribute to a conversation about it and help other people to learn and learn from them and um and i've been very privileged to be part of catherine project in a place where it's really pretty easy for anyone to to come and join us um, and be a part of these these little communities. Um, so we're working on building in-person communities, but I think we'll always need to have the online versions just for the people who, who are just in areas where it's just never going to, you're just never going to find 10 people to read the Iliad with you. You know, tragically, it's true. Um, so uh, anyway, I would recommend they check out the Catherine Project, Catherine, catherineproject.org, and we have some listings that even that are still open for the fall if people want to check in. Yeah, I um I would put in a plug for that because uh, I just I'm in my first Catherine Project reading group this semester and we've only had one meeting so I can't really speak to it yet but it is a delight to show up on your Zoom call and and I'm doing a a, a Luther reading course which is hilarious for me because I am a medievalist and I'm reading Luther kind of like partially tearing my hair out a little bit um <laughs> you know to all you right. Lutherans out there much love uh but I, I've been but uh it's been a really great uh intellectual experiment for me so anyways yeah. um definitely look that up and and I I want to also touch on what you were saying I think the interesting so two things that I, I would like to kind of pull out of what you just said about, about uh, cultivating an intellectual life together. And I, I totally agree that I think one of the things 
is a um, confidence, a lack of confidence. And I think I never thought of it that way, but that's really interesting that you bring that up where I think we're trained to think that, uh, and not even like explicitly trained, but just be by virtue of if you're interested in something even slightly off the beaten path, you are sort of afraid to talk about it sometimes. Um, something intellectual that you're like, other people are going to find this boring. Um, and, and so I do totally want to echo that sort of, yeah, you can, you can read old books, you can read hard things. I really do believe that. And that's one of the reasons why I started this podcast. But, um, the other thing I wanted to ask you more about that I'm really interested in is this inherent and really productive tension in the intellectual life of community and sharing information and intellectual life, the, the the inward life of refuge. And you talk about this a little bit in your book, but I think it's a really um, interesting idea to sort of draw out. Could you describe that a little bit more? Yeah, I think I... It's a part of the book that I could have said more about. Mm -hmm. um, I mean, one of the things I learned writing the book and I've, it's been reinforced since is that you, you never write the perfect book. You write <laughs> the book that is, that has to be written in the time that you have to write it. And, um, mm -hmm. you know, I, I'm grateful that I had, I had enough, uh, sense to try to write it in an open-ended way so that the question people could develop their questions in their own direction. It didn't, you know, it's not meant to be a comprehensive treatment. Um, but I think this question about the individual in the community is really interesting because on the one hand, uh, a lot of the stories that I tell are about people who are in hostile or oppressive yes. uh, social environments. They're lower class. Um, they're, they're black in a particularly racist community. They're in prison. They're mm -hmm. political prisoners. They're from a marginalized political group, um, what have you. Um, and, uh, or even they're just like the, the nerdy bookworm in high school and everyone else is yes. plays sports, you know, I mean, that's the most basic version of it. Right. Um, or the most familiar to us middle-class mm -hmm. Americans. Um, so, uh, for, for someone like that books, and of course I was like that many of the people who read me are like that. You, you find a refuge in books from, from the social life, which is kind of diminishing and, um, makes you feel isolated and alone and somehow less than less than um and in in the world of books you find uh uh fuel for reflection and thoughts and imaginations and uh stories and uh um lines of argument that that belong to you and that and that and that feed you no matter what's going on um, and you know, the, the critic George Steiner, who is someone who I really like, um, he talks about memorizing poems to get sort of ballast against mm. the storms of life, right? So mm -hmm. your ship's not going to be turned over if you have enough weighty things in your interior to help preserve you, even in the worst circumstances. On the other hand, on the other hand, this, the other side of the tension is this, that, um, all of those books, were written by someone. Mm -hmm. uh, there's human beings on the other end of those words, and you are in some way or other communing with them when you read their books or when you memorize their poems or when you um, follow their footsteps chasing the peregrine falcons or whatever you're doing. Uh, and so there really is a way in which learning is always a kind of communion or a communal activity. And I think once you the way that I think it works for many people is 
you you find a refuge in yourself away from the diminishing parts of social life, competitive social life. Mm-hmm. And then you you have grounds for real connection, real friendship. Um, and so um, kinds of learning become available to you with others, which are even better than being on one's own. So there's no book, no matter how good, um, that I wouldn't prefer to read with some other people um, mm-hmm. who will see things that I don't see and who will help me to make my own way through the book. Um, and I think what you'll see in a Catherine Project discussion group or the kind of group we have at St. John's, it doesn't, it doesn't, um, in a way it culminates in the conversation. In another way, everyone goes home and yes. feeds their own inner life with whatever happened. So I think it matters in the long term because of what that learning means for an individual. Um, but it is also part of our our, our human family to, to engage in learning. And it's a way of connecting deeply with others, with people that are still alive, with people that are in your community, with people who are far away, with people who are dead, with people of the future. Um, it's very profound form of uh, human unity through learning. And, and I, I, I sort of gestured that in the book, but I don't develop it as much as I, as I might've liked. Mm. You know, it makes me think of the, I, like, I think that, uh, listening to you speak and withdrawing from competitiveness because it's your own little thing that even when you're doing in community, you are still withdrawing into yourself and then coming back out. You know, it's this sort of back and forth process with with uh, digesting what you're learning, um, whether that's on your own or in a reading group or in a classroom or whatever. But that this idea of sort of learning as a gift where um, if it's not, uh, you know, if you can set aside the instrumentalization and all of that at its form at a really, at a really basic level, that's really beautiful. I think you are receiving gifts and giving gifts all the time when you are opening yourself up to learning, right? Whether that's in reading or in gardening or in um, writing or any field that you take on um, and are interested, genuinely interested in and pursuing, um, you learn and then you want to uh, give it again. Um, And then you take it back again. And it's this really lovely tension of... um, that's at the core, I think, of of that balance between the intellectual inward life and the life outward in community of the living and the dead, right? Yeah, yeah no, I think that's beautiful. And it, it connects back to what you were saying about play, you know, which is, mm-hmm. um, and, and about learning for its own sake, which another way of putting would be to say learning in the realm of gratuity, you know, mm-hmm. where, where um, it, it's there's always more. Um, yes, you know you 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 don't have to set up rigid structures because there's sort of infinite ways to do it, and and there's just you know even one of these books that I teach, which is like one of ten trillion really great books. Uh, you they're just full of things that every time you read them, they give something back to you, and. It's definitely part of how I see what I'm doing at this this stage of my life is, you know, I received all this stuff and 
oh gosh knows I, I it wasn't necessary you know no no one <laughs> yeah. no one no one um it was it was really you know providential it was lucky it was all these things um thanks to my my family upbringing thanks to my position in life thanks to a few chance you know paths life choices that just happened to go one way and not another and uh, I would like to to give those back to to other young people so that they can do the same thing in the next generation. And um, part of what I think we really suffer from in the current moment is, um, yeah, lack of awareness of 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 what's gratuitous, what's uh, overabundant, what's yes. well well beyond anything that we could have ever asked for. And that's what that's what makes us um, relaxed and happy and flourishing is when we see those things. Yes. And it also keeps us from, uh, from tipping over into arrogance. Like strangely, if you are, if you are learning, um, actively and really putting yourself out there uncomfortably very often as a novice (laughs) or as an expert for that matter, the more I read about my, my field that I have a doctorate in, which is medieval English literature, the more I realize how little I know, how barely I have scraped the tip of the iceberg. And it's wonderful because you are constantly excited by the depths of, of whatever's opening out in front of you, but you're also constantly aware of your own limitations and littleness and inability to read and understand everything. And so it's this really great school for character formation as well, where um, you're like, paradoxically, the further you get into something, the more you should realize, or at least in in my own experience, the more I have realized my limitations and my smallness in this like vastness of what is being offered of the gift, right? Yeah. No. And I think that is a sign of uh, real expertise is that it's not that you've somehow mastered some like you know, it's not like you have this huge arsenal of, full of weapons with which you can like bully anyone. It's that, in fact, you know better than almost anyone how how little that you know about the thing that you have spent a bunch of time in. Um, and I I also think it's something that I I try to keep in myself and that I try to model for my students. Mm-hmm. And I you know we try to keep it in the Catherine Project, whereby you know, the, the proper mode for learning is uh, openness and, and joy. It's like, you, you know, you, so you say like, oh my gosh, I really don't understand this. Or, oh, I, I think I see something. It goes like this. Or I'm grasping for an idea, but I've only got it half-baked. And can you guys help me figure it out? When you do it that way, you're inviting other people into, into the thinking. And whereas the mode that many people take in the, the reason why so many of us are wounded in this area is the, is the sense of like, I know this thing and you do not. Yes, uh, domination. It's, it's domination, yeah. It's the use of power. Knowledge is power. And that's really, um, it's it's not what learning is for. Right. I it's mean, antithetical it's, it's, to yeah, knowledge as yeah. gift, right? To, yeah. to to that lifelong cultivation of, of um, well, I mean, this is a, I, I, I had like looked away from you for a sec as you were speaking because it reminded what you were saying reminded me so much of this Mary Oliver poem, which is instructions for living a life, pay attention, be astonished, 
tell about it. And I think that encapsulates <laughs> perfect. What, right? Isn't that perfect? Yeah. Um, well, well, and I also, I just, just want to clarify too, it's not just a, a moral or aesthetic thing right. to treat it as to be open and joyful and astonished. It's also just what intellectual honesty demands and mm-hmm. it's what serious inquiry demands because you're, if, if you're using your knowledge as power, you are shutting people out from yes. following that line of inquiry you become further. a gatekeeper. Exactly. Uh, and so the, and for knowledge to really be functioning, the gates have to be open. Um, so anyway. Yeah. Well, it reminds me, uh, I, one of the parts of uh, your book that I appreciated and am going to kind of keep uh, chewing over is you, uh, to return to confessions, yeah. um, you talk about Augustine's discussion of curiositas, which is often um, unhelpfully translated as curiosity. Um, and uh, for for those of you who um, haven't read Confessions or who haven't read it recently and may not remember, he he talks about this in relation to his friend who's addicted to watching um, gladiatorial contests. And um, But we've associated it with this modern word curiosity, which puts kind of a wrench in what we were just saying about being astonished and going deeper. Do you want to just tell more about how you kind of retranslate that for us and how we might actually take that usefully as a caution. So uh, it's, this is something actually I've been thinking about more recently in the context of other thinkers. And I've, I'm coming to the conclusion that uh, many, many uh, of the canonical philosophers had some notion that learning needed to be put in certain kinds of limits not because um, somehow uh, there, there's a certain uh, rigid attitude to learning, which is sometimes associated rightly or wrongly with religious people that somehow don't <laughs> think about that or you'll lose your faith. You know, don't think about that or you mm-hmm. might become a bad person. And I think that Augustine's condemnation of something called curiosity feeds into that interpretation. Yes. It's like, don't you go inquiring into the scientific basis of the universe. Like your mind is not good enough for that. And that, that seems to me really uh, not uh, a true or helpful account yes. of, of Augustine or anyone else's serious thinking. But there are dangers in the use of the mind. And among the dangers are what we were just talking about, the the use of knowledge to gain power for oneself, to to win competitive conversations, as Augustine, as a young man, is very interested in, to um, to to gather sort of esoteric secrets like um, the Manichaeans in the Confessions, where you know there's this sort of arcane set of knowledge about the universe, which if you master, you can somehow see into the lives of others in a in a way that's obviously inappropriate and wrong. Um, or I think honestly, nowadays there's a lot of, uh, and and you could even treat it lightly, um, know-it-alls like the people you know. Oh, actually, you know, everyone who starts a word with oh, actually, and <laughs> yeah. they, what they often say is not even necessarily true. It's yes. just um, something that sounds wise in effect, and it's a way of exerting power in a situation. So I I think curiositas is. Um, better translated as something like love of spectacle. So it's when you, instead of loving the object of knowledge, you love the feeling of knowledge. Mm. And that feeling of knowledge may be a feeling of power. It may be a feeling of kind of uh, 
wonder without content. So, you know, you're watching the gladiators and you're like, oh, wow. Oh, look, you know, you you want to look at the car accident as you're speeding by it. Why? You're not going to learn anything by looking at the car accident. Um, so one test for it is, you know, am I am I learning anything <laughs> by exercising this thing, which I think is a desire for learning? And um, so it's it, it's a it's a it was just a, a first attempt I made to try to distinguish uses of what feels like the desire to know in ways which are um, not healthy or productive for us mm-hmm. versus ones which are fruitful and uh, life-giving and that contribute to our flourishing. Mm-hmm. I find that I often, um, unfortunately, consume the news this way, for instance. Yes, um, yes. Where I'm, I'm not, I, I'm like <laughs> not reading to learn something. Genuinely, I'm not. I'm reading to uh, confirm something that I suspect or to bolster something in myself or to send myself, uh, I don't do this intentionally, but I do it nonetheless to send myself into some kind of a terror over something. Um, and yeah, I do that all the time. (laughs) Yeah. I think news is, is probably the, the, the biggest exercise of curiositas that I know of among the people that are me and people like me. Um, and I, I've, I've learned in the past two years, I've really tried to, uh, wean myself off of it. And I'm astonished at how little I actually need to read to have a basic sense of what's going on, mm-hmm. the kind that I might need to be a responsible person and to follow conversations, and that I don't actually need to read every essay, every article, to go down every rabbit hole. Like It turns out that that was never about knowledge. It was about something else. Mm-hmm. Um, and it's it's really, I think, healthy for us to try to wean ourselves off news. But again, that sounds crazy, right? Because you think, oh, well, but news is information, news is learning, news is knowledge. And it, it takes some thinking and some discernment to realize that that's not the case. It's, it's titillation, it's excitement, it's spectacle, it's emotional roller coaster mm-hmm. for its own sake. It's a sense of superiority to others. It's a sense of horror that, that relieves you from responsibility. It's all of these things which are not, really not things that if you think about, you want to cultivate in yourself. Mm-hmm. Um. And so that's kind of the counterpoint, again, a word that is <laughs> a difficult word, um, tricky to, to curiosity, um, well, okay. whatever, uh, is um, you call the virtue of seriousness, which is um, uh, you translating, is it, uh, I'm forgetting the word, is it studiositas? That's right, studiositas. Yeah. Yes. Uh, um, so, yes, and... Again, the virtue of seriousness is kind of a tough, a tough even translation of that because it's like, oh, does that mean sort of the is does that mean I have to be the the stereotype? Like I have to have a dusty library of leather bound books and only laugh on uh, you know, every other Tuesday or something. <laughs> right. Like like do it um and really that's not what you're saying at all. But could you talk a little bit more about how that kind of can counterbalance our compulsion, urge, temptation towards um, the desire for spectacle. Yeah. So, um, Augustine's distinction is between curios, it's adject- two adjectives, curiosus and studiosus. Mm-hmm. Uh, and then in Thomas Aquinas, it gets developed and abstracted into curiositas and studiositas. Yes. Um, so, uh, and studiousness is how the opposite of 
curiositas is sometimes translated. I thought seriousness, whatever its vices, is not quite as bad as studiousness, which <laughs> yeah. sounds well, like... Well, because that really does sound like you're trapped maybe in a library for the rest yeah. of your life. Yeah. And really, well, it's... Yeah. It's also like doing what you're told and being a goody goody <laughs> and putting a shiny apple on the teacher's desk. And, you know, I'm studious, you know, I do what I'm told. So um, the, the virtue of seriousness is, is meant to capture a, a certain kind of uh, restlessness, mm. um, uh, a sense that there's more to whatever it is that you're thinking about than the thing that you happen to grasp. Uh, so, um, one of the examples I think I use for it is, is you know, Dorothy Day is reading these, uh, as a young woman, is reading these uh, novels about um, sort of really potboiler type novels about poverty in the United States and the lives of working people. And she reads them and she's like, well, what, what does this actually look like in real life? You know, what, what, what is this really like? So she goes out and looks at and then eventually spends time with and eventually moves into these communities in her desire to really get into the reality of the thing. Uh, that's, that's seriousness. Mm-hmm. Um, and likewise, Augustine, you know, he doesn't, he doesn't even once he, so he undergoes this restless pursuit of wisdom when he's a young man that culminates in his conversion. But even then he's not done. He's like, well, what, what, I, you know, I read Genesis and it sounded like a stupid fairy tale. Um, let me go back to it and see whether I can see something different. And sure enough, he writes like five commentaries on Genesis, <laughs> all of which are very philosophically rich and very sophisticated. And um, so that's that's also seriousness. It's mm-hmm. you're not um, you're not satisfied with uh, a particular experience that feels like knowing. You know, it, it's not enough for you to just knock someone down in an argument or have a feeling of outrage or have a feeling of superiority. You need more than that. You want to know, you want to get in touch with that reality that's, that's drawing you on. Mm. Um, it reminds me of, um, I was just reading for something else, the mid-century philosopher Joseph Pieper's account of faith. And he talks about how, yes, faith has that, that, you know, he's using Thomas Aquinas's definition of faith. That's who he's working off of exploring and thinking about faith as this thing that you, you do believe in, you are fully believing in it. Um, but then in that, there's a tension that is constantly drawing you deeper into it um, that you cannot uh, ignore, sort of that you ignore at your peril, basically, because um, it's just a call f- deeper in. And, and that's what this is reminding me of um, as, I, as I think about this, how it's, it's not a settled knowledge or a settled doubt even, but this call further up and further in. No, that's a great example, because I think we all know, those of us who, who actually, whether you practice a religion or you don't, um, there are people who, who's, who and impulses in ourselves where you, you use it defensively. You're like, yes. well, uh, I'm right, I'm right, and, you know, and that connects with the news. It's like, let, let me read about all the wrong people so I can feel righter. <laughs> yes. <laughs> and yes. 
that is really not a life of faith. A life of faith is when you're, you know, you're sort of struck by your own weakness and your own humbleness and somehow the greatness of God and you just want more of whatever God's giving you. Um, and that, that kind of restlessness is really crucial. Yes. In, yeah, he uses the term restlessness faith. specifically, which is yeah. very similar to how you're describing this yeah. virtue of seriousness. Um, well, it's our friend Augustine, you know, the restless. <laughs> it, he's he's a- always in the background <laughs> for good and for ill at times. But yes, <laughs> I do love him. Um, okay, so we're about at time. But um, if people are wanting to know more about your work, um, wanting to know more about what you're up to. I know you have another book coming out. I'm excited to see what that looks like. But where can people find you online if they if they want to learn more? So I have a website called zenahits.net. Um, so my name's Z-E-N-A-H-I-T-Z.net. Uh, you can also find me on Twitter, um, where uh, I don't post truthfully all that often anymore, but I have been active in the past, and I try to put things up there. Um, but I'm, I'm fortunate enough. I, I, um, I think even just a Google search, I've got a lot of other podcasts and interviews and articles and just feel free to poke around and, and see what you like. The new book is called, um, a philosopher looks at the religious life. It's an account of, uh, the lives of monks and nuns and other f- forms of consecrated life. Uh, it's a short book. Uh, it's an essay like lost in thought. And it's coming out in March. Uh, so keep an eye out for it. I'm really excited for that. I also, since you mentioned that your book is short, I want to give you a shout out specifically <laughs> for writing a short book because I can't even tell you how much I appreciate that as somebody who's reading a lot. So thank you. <laughs> no problem. I, I I hate long books myself, so I, I couldn't justify inflicting one on on someone else. I mean, unless it's like Don Quixote or War and Peace or something, <laughs> but I, I knew what I was writing wasn't that. So I, I think I'd I keep like it short. There's let, a let, very, let my readers do the rest. Yeah. There's a very narrow category of, of people I'm willing to follow for thousands of pages. So. <laughs> So I think that um, I thought it was wonderful um, and I just appreciate it. So I'm looking forward to another lovely short book. And also that sounds really fascinating. I'll definitely keep my eye out for that. So thank you so much for coming on and for your sharing your wisdom and your thoughts on the intellectual life with us. Thanks. It's a pleasure to talk to you, Grace. Thanks again for listening to Old Books with Grace. I'm Dr. Grace Hammond. I'd really appreciate it if you enjoyed the show. If you left a review or subscribed online on whatever platform that you listen on, you can also find me online and continue this conversation. Um, I'm on Twitter at Grace Hammond PhD, also Instagram at Old Books with Grace. I'd love to see you there and keep chatting about the beautiful joy of learning. Thanks again for listening, and I'll see you next time. Oh.